My name is Sharzad Kiade. I'm a Gemini pescatarian, a mom of two wild little boys. I'm Susan Yara. I'm a mom of two also. This morning, I went to the bathroom alone. I woke up at five, put my boob in her mouth, and then she took a dump. Because that's what she uses me for. <laughs> that's what you're going to hear a lot of our stories and experiences in our crazy journeys to motherhood. It's fam for all moms, not for all dads, not fathers and moms, for all moms. It's going to be a good old time. You guys are going to want to stick around. Promise. So subscribe. Hello and welcome to the Tifa Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and I am joined today by Seb Stafford Bloor. Hello, Joe. Hello. Hello. And uh, Alex Stewart. Hello. Who I can't see because your face is hidden behind a computer screen from me. There you go. The magic of uh, camera angles and positioning. Hmm? Today we are here to talk about Southampton, but before we do, a quick uh, little shout out to someone who I think now is uh, certainly Alex and, and I's favourite listener. Uh, it is, uh, what was his name? He-Man from Stockholm, who listened to last week's podcast, where we said at the beginning about how we're not on Spotify, having some issues. Um, and he contacted us. He works for Spotify in Stockholm. And he contacted us and then very kindly contacted the uh, the UK office for us directly. And now we're available on Spotify. Are we really? We are available on Spotify. Oh, now. I'm going to listen to uh, all of our past episodes on the way home. Please do. Yeah. I think it'll be, it'll be wonderful. And have a little one also tiny my bit of a little bit closer. A little bit closer. There you go. Yeah. We're actually going to sort of telling me what to do rather than sort of vague uh, hand <laughs> signals. It's because you don't understand you my hands. Yeah, I'd, I'd say who wouldn't some understand of your hand this? Signals, you know, a little bit, a little bit, a uh, little bit sure. ambiguous. But Iman, thank you so much. We really appreciate that. Very, that was a very uh, kind thing to do, and it made me think, isn't it wonderful that uh, we have so many listeners that we can uh, say pretty much anything, and then someone will do something. That's very kind. I'd like a free house. Uh, <laughs> I'd like a lifetime supply of. Uh, Careful with what you say next. Mm, chocolate. Okay. That's good. Let's say. And uh, you know, maybe some more friends would be good as well. Uh, actually, <laughs> that went somewhere dark. Didn't scratch it? that. Scratch that one. Don't want any more friends. Uh, Southampton. This is going to be exciting. Seb, uh, the weekend you saw you were at St Mary's for uh, them the victory against Tottenham, mm-hmm. which we can talk about. Alex, uh, you are a Southampton fan. I am. And have been for over six months, I think. <laughs> Since it suited you to, to ch- say that. Was that true? Or? Yeah, no. Oh, uh, your whole life? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I used to have a season ticket um, back in the early 2000s. And you handed it in because you were disappointed with the playing style? Uh, no, I handed it in because it got so expensive to travel to and from games. Sure. Um, because I was at university. Mm. Well, there you go. If listeners yeah. ever needed a, a proper confirmation that the Premier League is too expensive these days, uh, you've heard it there from Alex, wealthy Alex himself. Even he can't afford it. So who's it for? It's not for the working class. It's not for the middle class. It's clearly not for the lower upper class. I'll have to sell some land or something <laughs> exactly. to, to go. Exactly. Okay, I've written a bunch of things down here. Uh, I'm not sure which order to go in. Um, of course, you, you know, the main thing I think that we're going to talk about, or at least the, the main thing that will litter conversations uh, that we have throughout the podcast will be about Ralph Parsonhutl, who has been there, I think, since December now. So he's had a few months to, to bed in. Um, I found this amazing quote from him uh, that he said, and I believe it was his first press, press conference, and I'm going to recite it now. He said, you can expect a very kind of, a very passionate kind of football with 11 characters on the field who know exactly what to do. When you see us playing in the summer, it will be very different to what you, how you see the team now. I can't guarantee how many results you'll earn from that, but if you want guarantees, buy a washing machine. In football, there are no guarantees. I hope it's enough to stay in the division. Mm-hmm. And these themes are still uh, prevalent now, of course, Southampton. I think it's fair to say, despite uh, the weekend's result, that they are still 
you know, fighting in a relegation battle. Is that is that fair to say? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Okay. Um, but you know, to take the the sort of the part of his quote there, saying, "Look, we're we're going to look different in the summer." <clears throat> he recognises that instilling his sort of playing style. And I think more, you know, from reading more of what Hassan Hootel has said, more about instilling the different kind of attitude in his players as well, is <laughs> something that does take time. Mm. Um, but we're seeing improvements already, aren't we, Alex? Uh, certainly, there's. Uh, I think there's more sense of uh, a style that's at least being attempted. Yeah. Uh, one of the issues that we had under Hughes was not just um, slight arbitrariness in terms of formational decisions, but it, it did feel like there wasn't really a coherent idea of what was being attempted. Yeah. Um, and I think Hassan Hootel's been quite sensible, and we were talking, Seb and I, before the pod about, for example, the, the differences in the intensity of pressing in the first and second half against Spurs. But that, that to me, is a tactical decision. It's not necessarily an overall stylistic one. And I think Hassan Hootel has clearly sought to get the team to do certain kinds of things mm-hmm. um, with more consistency than I think Hughes ever managed. It, yeah. It's a team that's been in transition. I mean, obviously, ever since uh, Pochettino took over from Nigel Atkins, you know, Pochettino had a very clear style, which has been consistent through his career in Southampton, played that style. And then Ronald Kerman, Claude Puel, Pellegrino, it, it's sort of all been a little bit, you know, are we one thing, are we the other? Mm. Um, and now I think there's a manager who, interestingly, the style that he's using at Southampton so far is, is actually quite different in some respects from what he has used previously uh, and shows a, an ability to adapt to the playing stuff that he has at his disposal as, as much as get his own set of ideas across. Mm. But I watch them now thinking, okay, I can, I can see what they're trying to do now. Mm-hmm. And under Hughes, that wasn't really the case. Yeah. Um, well, Seb, let's start with uh, the game at the, at the weekend then. I imagine that you, you, you've seen Southampton earlier in the season before Hudson Nuttall's arrival. Uh, I don't know. Maybe not. You yeah, no, no, well, quite coincidentally, actually, I, I've seen, I saw them a little bit before his arrival. I was at his first game against Cardiff. Um, I was at the, um, the win over Fulham uh, 10 days ago. And I was, I was at Saturday, so I've, had, I, I've been lucky to kind of have a, a broad oversight on Southampton's progress this season. It's very interesting. Like I, I remember the, um, obviously having having spent time in plenty of Mark Hughes press press conferences, you, you certainly expected a, a few things when you went to Southampton, which was if they lost, there was an excuse. Mm. And I remember thinking after that Cardiff game, which they lost, they lost one nil to a you know a really poor defensive mistake. Um, and Hassan Hoodle came in and, and it was so different because he, he came in and he, he talked about it and there were, there were no excuses. It was very blunt. He was very, he was, he was doing that thing where he was very clearly annoyed, but also very aware that he was in public with sky cameras on him. So it was sort of his, his face was placid, his eyes were burning kind of, kind of situation. Um, and he, he talks very pragmatically about the game. I mean, he, his, um, his English is good. His comprehension of English, possibly not at the same level. So what, what tends to happen is, when he's asked a question, he'll tend to monologue um, in quite a broad way, which is really interesting journalistically because you, you learn a lot. You learn a lot about what he's trying to do and, um, you know, you learn beyond the boundaries of the original question. And that's kind of, it would be easier if Southampton had been on a, a, a low curve upwards ever since. They haven't really been. They, they've just, they've, I, I would say that Saturday, maybe this is one for Alex, I'd say Saturday's probably the best I've seen. Saturday's second half is the best I've seen them since he arrived yeah i'd agree with that um so yeah it's 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 starting to look good i, I still think 
as ever, as with Pochettino, when you, when, you, when you get these guys who come in who have a really specific design on how to play and who stand for something ideologically, there's always a time lag. There's always a period of time where you, you have false dawns where you think, well, well, that went well and that, that 20 minutes within the game is really productive. But mm. then there's a step back somewhere. So mm. in Southampton's case, it would be the home loss to Cardiff, which was just, I think that came a, a week after winning Leicester or Palace or one of the two. I can't remember. I, I can't. It was that. a good result, though. It was either <laughs> yeah. way. What I thought, where I, where I saw a result. I, 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 in fact, I'm pretty sure it was Palace. And James Ward-Prowse scored. And I remember thinking, right, that's it now. There is a, this is not going to work properly until the summer and beyond. But this is the point where you strike Southampton out of that relegation <laughs> conversation and you separate them from teams like Brighton uh, at Newcastle. Fulham. Well, Fulham are, are in their own sort of Huddersfield category, sadly, for them. But yeah, that, that kind of thing. At the time, yes, Fulham. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, you mentioned James Ward-Prowse there. Mm-hmm. I wanted to bring him up anyway. Yep. Um, and, it, you know, again, fits in with the theme of, of Hasenhutl's takeover. Because he seems to be, you know, not necessarily a completely different player, but I was t- chatting to Alex about this before. And this is a, a conversation we've had in the past. And uh, thoughts we've had observing uh, James Ward-Prowse in the past is that mm. there's, there's always been an undoubted uh, potential there. Mm. He's, it's funny to think he's only 24. I mean, it feels like he's been establishing that team for such I, a long time. I, honestly, I, I looked up the Southampton statistics uh, on, on the train up here today and I thought, I can't be 24. It's unbelievable, it's been, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, it's been around for but, so long. You know, we, the, the thing that is often commented on regarding Ward-Prowse is his technical ability, yeah. which is obviously very, very good. Yeah. He's very, very proficient. We all know about his uh, set-piece delivery from, from dead ball situations. Yeah. He scored a few free kicks recently. That's that been all... a constant. His set-piece delivery has always been super. That's always yeah. been really good. One of the things that hasn't been a constant throughout his career, and one of the criticisms of him before the last 10 games, let's say, is his inability to get score enough goals yeah. from situations in which he should. And also, I, th- I think about him, I associate him with you know the group of players who were skimmed off the Southampton squad to other big teams over the yeah. last few years. And James Ward-Prowse was always the one who was left behind, which for Saints fans is, is a great thing. It's an indicator of what other clubs think of him as well. But the last 10 games, I mean, I think I'm right in saying that he is now uh, the, the leading English midfield scorer in the Premier League. Uh, not only is his attacking game seemed to have not necessarily improved, but had those finishing touches added to yeah. it, but also he's tackling all over the field. He looks like, you know, Hasenhutl described him as the complete midfielder. What do you make of him? Because he was instrumental at the weekend. Complete midfielder, probably a little bit strong for me. Um, maybe that's uh, one of the, the kind of uh, lost in translation bits of Hassan Hutter. What I will say is he's become more... More positive Bre- reinforcement. Maybe, maybe, maybe. It's, maybe it's a Mourinhoism um, or a Brendan Rodgersism yeah. to, to be more contemporary. Um, I think I, Mourinho is negative reinforcement. Yeah, yeah, it certainly is now, yeah. Um, uh, I'd say the main difference I've seen is that he's more aggressive. Like right. he's... I think the knock on Wood-Prowse was that um, he... He's always been a very cultured player. He's been a wonderful ball striker. He's that piece of delivery speaks for itself. But was he someone that actually um, worked as hard as he possibly could to change games? In open play, that is. And I think certainly against Fulham and Spurs, the energy in his game, I know that's a bit of a woolly platitude, but his determination to be in scoring position. So if you think about, about his, his goal against Fulham, the sort of, Okay, it relied on a goalkeeping mistake. But would James Ward-Prowse a year or two ago been in that position to score? Probably not. But the tapping at the back post is mm-hmm. that kind of opportunist <laughs> gambling run that so many goal-scoring midfielders have made. And you can... You can, you can the following in, right? Yeah. I think there's also a thing with him, which is that he has suffered a little bit from being 
good enough at certain things to play in different positions and maybe not making enough of any of those things to secure one. So he has played as a 10, he has played as a 7, he's played as an 8, mm. he can play as a 6. Played as a fullback once, wasn't he? Um, possibly. I believe so. Yeah, I'm... Very Someone's good. done their research. <laughs> Thank you. More than me. Um, but but I think I think that's because you know his his through passes are excellent. He is a creative player. He's a very good crosser of the ball. But perhaps as an adjunct to what you were saying, he he never quite put down a marker to say I'm going to be the creative player around whom you build your side in the ten position yeah. or as a deep lying playmaker alongside a more combative midfielder. And is that or- what he is now, Alex? In in Hudson Hootles. New Southampton is he is he the key player? Um, in I, certain phases, yeah. I I would say I'd say that there's still a reliance offensively on Nathan Redmond, yes. a little bit. But what process? But by the game becoming more and more influential. I, I mean, I think if you, if you look at the Spurs game, the kind of the key passing combination for most of that game was was Ryan Bertrand to Nathan Redmond, mm-hmm. um, and Angus Gunn certainly was kicking most of his goal kicks and long passes out towards Bertrand or Redmond and and there was a lot coming down that left-hand flank but I think what Ward-Prowse can do is use the the dynamism that's on the other side and and Valerie has developed really well and and is playing well but he's a less aggressive wing back than Bertrand and he's less technically capable than Bertrand so Mm -hmm. it allows Ward-Prowse to drift in field and and kind of wait for the ball to come to him a little bit from that left-hand side, and then find himself in in difficult, uh, difficult, dangerous positions to then push forwards and and get a strike on goal or try and play someone in. You know, you know what occurred to me. I um back in uh, I, I I spent a lot of time with um that generation's under twenty one side in their qualifying games and and their um the England under twenty ones um and their final tournament in Poland in twenty seventeen. And Alex and I were talking about this beforehand. I um. Angus Gunn, I, I spent a bit of time in mixed zones with, and James Ward Prowse did too, and he, he's, he's a really impressive person. Um, it's a kind of common trait of, of players who've been reared in Southampton, who come through their academy. There's a, there's a sort of, um, there's a method to the way they talk, which a lot of their, a lot of their peers don't always have. And Ward Prowse is someone that you, you can actually have a conversation with. I remember I interviewed him after England got knocked out on penalties by Germany. Um, and he's so, the, the intelligence he, he demonstrates makes it kind of, I mean, it, it's hindsight talking, but it, it doesn't make it unsurprising that he's adapted to new tactical instruction in the middle of, in the middle of a season. So kind of, I, I think we talked about the, the difficulties of, of transitioning to a new style, particularly without the benefit of a preseason. I don't think it's a coincidence that someone like Hassan Hüttel comes in with a set of relatively complex instructions and someone like that adapts well to it. I think it's one of the, the great underrated um, uh, attributes in football is comprehension, intelligence, and the ability to act on instruction. Mm. Um, it's and- funny that we say it's underrated because when, when we see it in a player at the top level and it makes such an obvious difference, everyone recognises that. But, but-, but Joe, I think there's two different types. There's a kind of the intelligence in the sense that people go, oh, you know, Teddy Sheringham was a really intelligent player because mm. like, he can play a reverse pass. But then there's the kind of the more academic um, mm. intelligence whereby someone can actually watch a, a video analysis situa- um, uh, session and 
assimilate what's happening, what he's being told, what he has to do to develop as a player. Are we, are we talking about players who might end up going on to be the better coaches with that sort of? I don't know. I, I mean, I don't necessarily. I, I don't think I understand the correlation between good player, good intelligent player, and better coach because I, I, I don't know. I haven't studied it. But I mean, um, yeah, it's it's not a surprise that he's doing well here and now. No, I think I think also Southampton have got two other players that that fit that. Um, Bertram being one, mm, and yeah. also Hoiberg. Um, Hoiberg learned a lot from his time uh, at Bayern Munich under Guardiola and, and was kind of his eye for a while. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he was sort of the heir apparent to um, that, that, you know, intelligent screening defensive midfielder who's such a key to the way that, that Guardiola sets his teams up. And, and that was supposed to be Hoiberg. Um, and it was kind of a surprise when he moved to Southampton in that regard. But there are clearly a few players in that team who think about the game in a certain kind of way um and and i'm just sure there are plenty of other players that don't but it does make a difference and i think you know that the hassan does have a, a particular kind of system a particular kind of style and it, it's similar to say when jürgen klopp arrived at, at liverpool you know there was always going to be a period of transition and there's always going to be um a time lag before those ideas were fully comprehended mm-hmm. let alone before they were put into place but having players like Ward Prowse and Bertrand and Hoiberg in the squad will make that transition easier. Mm, okay well let's talk about Arsene Hootl's preferred setup then the players mm. that we're mentioning slot into this what's he what's he doing differently I mean I know it's difficult to it's difficult for us to doing give a brief idea of what Mark Hughes was doing because oh, right. there were so yeah. many different <laughs> yeah I don't I, yeah. <laughs> you literally cannot honestly if you're going to eat nicotine gum just get three or four of them out before we start recording the podcast. You know what? Actually, that's. Do you remember you were it. talking before about a man with a smile and burning eyes? That's, that's me. That's when you, whenever you do this. God, actually, he's more frightening than Hassan Hutel. Look at his. He does that. Oh, They're about the same height as well. Yeah, they are. They are. Um, I have now got an extra piece out, so good. That we won't. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you can have your nicotine <laughs> like. It's a, been an early start yeah, and a sure. stressful morning full of yeah. train delays. Yeah. Right. Mm. Um, What's he doing? <laughs> Right, so Hassan Hutl, what's interesting is that he made his reputation at Ingolstadt. I bet you don't do that on the BT podcast, do you? (laughs) No, I don't. It's a lack lack of respect. Okay, we know that now. Alex, do continue. Okay, thanks. Um, Yeah, so at Ingolstadt, he played a a, a 4-3-3, and the two key facets of it were very, very intense pressing uh, throughout the pitch, uh, high, medium, and low, and a very direct style of play, particularly into the channels between the fullback and the centre-back, uh, and then looking for pullbacks. And it was basically any opportunity to counter-attack was taken, mm. a lot of long passing. Um, and, and we've kept the directness at Southampton, haven't we? Exactly, yes. So um, I think what what's interesting for me is that that both at Ingolstadt and Leipzig, uh, Hassan Hutl very rarely, if ever, used a back three. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, the use of the back three at Southampton, which has been very consistent through his selections, is because neither, well, none of our centre backs are particularly good, and so I think he's compensating for that. We've got a it, Van Dyke shaped hole, right? Um, I think Bednarak has uh, potential. I think Vestergaard is growing into the team. Um, Otherwise, I think we look a bit light in that respect, and playing three is always a good way of compensating for that. Mm. It does allow Bertrand, Valerie, and we've got a couple of others like Matt Target who can get forwards from wingback and create that directness. So they will sort of surge down there, 
down the flanks, uh, and basically the passing is all directed out into that that space. I mean, Valerie was very direct against Man United, wasn't he? Yeah, he had a great game against United. That goal was unbelievable. He played well against Spurs. Yeah, he I mean, he's, yeah. he's a good player. He's still, again, he's very young. He's like he's learning. 20, <laughs> 19, 20, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and has has spent a period of time in the Southampton youth setup. He, he mm-hmm. was taken from Rennes or Reims or someone like that, a French team beginning with R, but and when he has- was, when he was still in his teens. Um, mm-hmm. So again, he's kind of been around the system for a little bit and he has been touted as a prospect for the last couple of years. Because obviously as well, Hasnud uh, was at um, Leipzig. Yeah. Um, and we know when he was there, he played with the four two 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 formation, which, was a, was potentially a hangover from Ralph Rangnick, which is why it was difficult for us to understand whether he whether that was his yeah. idea, whether he, you know he would have played that anyway, whether that was directed from above. Are we seeing any elements of that team? Uh, not not really. I'm <laughs> I suppose in so far as you've got two wider attacking midfielders that can drift in and attack the half spaces and look to feed off a a central striker, which is sort of what the wide players in the four four two or four two 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 at Leipzig did. Mm. Um, it was interesting because actually I kind of thought that that, that Leipzig formation might work at Southampton yeah. and uh, <laughs> Hughes played something not dissimilar to that a couple of times, but without anywhere near the kind of dynamism or creativity that Leipzig managed. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think bluntly it's, you know, when, particularly when you're in a relegation battle, the, the first thing to do is secure your back line and stop the leaking of goals. And exactly as Seb said, against Cardiff, and, and it's been a consistent theme this season, there are defensive errors. There, mm-hmm. are, there are mistakes that lead to goals, bad clearances, yeah. uh, whatever it is. Jack Stevens is, is quite often culpable of that. Yoshida can you know, push too far out. So I, I think that's why maybe again, once we get to the summer, we'll see something, if, if a good central defender is brought in, or if... Uh, Vestergaard and Bednarak develop as a partnership as a two, mm-hmm. we may see a reversion to what we'd expect more from Hasenhutl. Okay. And Seb, uh, th- there's been a lot of talk about uh, Hasenhutl's in-game management as well. We saw at the weekend there were a yeah. couple of uh, substitutions made. Was it, it was at halftime, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah it, was, it was straight away. It was, um, it was interesting. They, it's very rare to see a double change straight after the break. Usually you have that a bold kind of move, 15 right? minutes. Yeah, so he... Um, he took off Charlie Austin, replaced him with Shane Long, uh, took off Oro Romeo and put on Josh Sims, who is a academy bred winger, who played very, very well. Actually, I um a little shout out to Jack Rosser from the Evening Standard because he's he's been boring on about Josh Sims for a really long time. <laughs> Anytime I've seen him at Southampton, he's uh mm. yeah. Uh, he's but it's Southam- fair to say that he's a different sort of player to Oriel Romeo. So, <laughs> so uh taking him off and replacing him with Sims, I mean that's uh, it's again bold to do at half time, bold move anyway, right? Right. Well the, the the problem with Romeo on Saturday was that um obviously Spurs had Deli Ali back and you know, great footballer that Ali is, one of his great strengths is his pressing on the ball and he was very clearly detailed to get right in Romeo's face anytime um he received a you know pass from his <clears throat> any of his defenders. And Romeo's weakness is his first touch. He is not a he is a, a blocker, a stopper kind of midfielder. I don't think I mean I'm not trying to denigrate his technical ability, but he's not he's not blessed in that department. And so Ali was sort of um yapping around him anytime uh Southampton trying to work the way up the field and so it made sense. Get him off. Um, after the game, Hassan Hoodle talked about, um, uh, again, uh, just a sort of caveat with 
with his sort of his level of English, he was talking about how um the aim of that substitution was to disrupt Tottenham um in their build up phases to actually get a little bit more pressure on Jan Vertonghen and Davinson Sanchez because in the first half there was no press whatsoever. Now Charlie Austin up front, Charlie Austin not a natural athlete, I think it's fair to say, good finisher, but is he the hardest working player without the ball? Probably not. Mm. Um and you replaced him with Sims who was full of adrenaline and energy and, you know, uh, useful, youthful vigor. And Shane Long, whose um, <clears throat> who's finest attribute is what he does without the ball. And it, it he's a real tryhard. Yeah, he's a, he's, you know what? He's a pain. Mm. And that's, that's a compliment. Mm. He's an, a real pain. Like a little midgy. Well, he's, he's, like a, he's, like a, he's like an Irish Jamie Vardy without, without the goals. I, sorry, I should caveat that by saying I, I mean like Mosquito, a midgy. I don't mean, uh, I don't mean an offensive term for small people. I mean midgy. Okay. Okay. That's we've sorry, got uh, listeners from around the world. Do they use the word midgy elsewhere? Is that, is it, what is a midgy? Is it different to a mosquito? I mean, it is, isn't it? It's a midge. A midge. Yeah. There's no E. Oh, I mean, there's you've an created e, a mythical insect. Is this a bit yeah. like when uh, I was in PE at school and someone asked us that did a did a an activity and they said what is that and I put my hand up and said that's a, a roly poly sir when it's a it's a forward roll. I've, 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 no, no, I, I know midges, roly midges for a long time. Have you been saying this a lot? I, no, I'm just saying. Do you think that's we, we might be able to, to get to the root of that lack of friends? Is it a bit like? <laughs> is it a bit like how I thought a specific type of flower was called an Alice and Joe for a long time because that's my name and my sister's name and mother said it mother said <laughs> mother mother said those were the names of the flowers and she was wrong yeah well anyway to be clear i meant a small bug that is irritating and bites you not a small person so shane long <laughs> that was a thing i think we'll weird sit a couple of plays out i think now yeah it, it worked extremely well what was also impressive was unfortunately 20 minutes in the second half um Shane Long and Yamba Tongan had a little bit of a collision and Shane Long tried to run off but couldn't. Yeah. Um, seemed to, uh, as Needle said at the time, uh, there's a hamstring problem. Doesn't know the, the, the scope of it yet. But So he had to come off and then on came Stuart Armstrong. So it was really three reorganisations within the mm. space of 90 minutes. And um, the, the, the effect was very dramatic. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I'm a Tottenham fan. It, it was a dispiriting loss, really. But I think one of the problems with now, whenever a member of the top six loses, even away from home, it's kind of this, well, it's about them. And yeah, there, there, there's definitely fault to find with Spurs. And, you know, and Pochettino touched on that in his press conference. However, that shouldn't come at the cost of recognising what Hasnickel and Southampton did well. Mm. I mean, even like even even their second goal. So the discussion about that has been, oh, was it given in the, in the right place? Well, actually ignore that and look at the finish, but also look at the move which produced it. That is a pure, undiluted version of the, of the type of football Hasnoodle was supposed to bring. Great counter-attack. Tottenham in absolute disarray, caught cold, um, and Carl Walker-Peters with no option but to, to, to drag back. Probably could have been a red card as well. Yeah. I thought it was at the time, but I haven't seen the replay of it yet. Um, it's a great bit of football. It's a great bit of smart, a great bit of game awareness. What, what the situation is within the game, where your opponent's weak points are on the field, and then the ability to exploit them it was tr- a tremendous reaction. Yeah. Um, because uh, at half time, I don't think you'd have found a, a person in the stadium that would have um, would have backed a Southampton win. Yeah. Okay. Well, Southampton are currently now sitting in sixteenth uh, <clears throat> place, thirty points. Cardiff City are the threat. I would have thought from the relegation zone, twenty eight points. Fulham and Huddersfield, as you said earlier, 
are kind of in a league of their own at the mm-hmm. moment. I think Brighton are going down. You think Brighton are going down? Yeah. Brighton currently a uh, game in hand and three points ahead of Southampton. Mm-hmm. And why, what makes you say that? Uh, I like Cardiff. I think the uh, nervier and more rugged the football becomes as we approach the end of the season, the more effective they'll be just because they're equipped for it. Yeah. Um, and Brighton... I don't know. There's something about I. I. I think Southampton. I know the cliche says you know, there's no such thing as being too good to go down. I think there's more reason to believe in Southampton's safety than Brighton's. I see. I see some actual development in the side. I see an easier run in Southampton's only possibly unwinnable game is is against Liverpool. Right. Um, I expect they'll lose that. However, um, Brighton, they're not defending as well as they were. Their midfield is a bit curious. They're, they're with and without Pascal Gross, who's really influential. Um, Glenn Murray scored a very fine goal over the weekend, as did Anthony Knockhart, but I don't know. It's just, I, I, I saw what Brighton were last season, and I see the regression this year. Mm. And it just, it may, maybe it's in a historical bias on my, point, on my part. It just fits the pattern of that second season yeah. too neatly for me to look away from at the moment. So yeah, I, I'd say... Um, I think Cardiff will get out of it. I think Southampton will move out of it with, with, within the next sort of six well, weeks. Well, as you say, you look at these fixtures. I mean, mm-hmm. the first thing to say is that uh, Southampton visit Brighton at the end of March, yep. which will be an interesting game. I think they'll win that game. Um, you mentioned that, that they're at home to Liverpool, which is they're a, a, home a to tough Liverpool. one. Yep. They are uh, away to Watford. They are yep. at home to Wolves, uh, away to Newcastle, a home to Bournemouth, away yep. to West Ham. And home to Huddersfield. I think you, the thing you that think that's a good run in. Well, right? the thing that jumps out there is not just the winnable game like Huddersfield, and you know, but there, there are a lot of games there against teams who, by the time they they play, mm-hmm. will have very little left to play for, and that's always decisive. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. always very important at this point in the season. Yeah. Okay. Whereas uh, Brighton have left to play amongst others, Tottenham, Arsenal, yeah. Man City on the final day. At it's home. horrible. Yeah. So it's a horrible run in. It's horrible. They're also at home to Bournemouth. They're at home to Newcastle. These are enormous games. <laughs> They've yeah. got a really horrible run. You're right. Yeah, you're yeah. right. It doesn't look good. Uh, the other thing I wanted to talk about with with Southampton, and this is this is a sort of broader theme um, that we can, you know, I think we're all aware of it. Most people are aware of it. The idea uh, that people have in their head of Southampton, um, you know, from a few steps back, is that they're a they're a, a, a plucky little club uh, who have an incredible um, recent history record of developing. Young players, right? Mm-hmm. And you, you know, there's a, there's a joke has been made of how many Southampton players have ended up at Liverpool, but there's plenty of players elsewhere. Most notable example, potentially not Liverpool, is uh, Gareth Bale. We also have further back Theo Walcott and Alex Oxley Chamberlain as well. Uh, Oxley yep. Chamberlain, Luke uh, Shaw, Luke Shaw, Callum yeah. Chambers, Callum Chambers, yeah. Adam Lallana, yeah. uh, Ricky Lambert went somewhere Sadio else. Sadio Mane, obviously, as well. <laughs> you know, who's yeah. there? Yeah. Uh, Morgan Schneidlin, that didn't quite work out. No, no. Joseph Font to West Ham. That was a, a smart bit of business as I've ever seen. Vi- Victor- <laughs> West Ham, the, the last club in the world to know what everybody else does, as <laughs> yeah. always. Yeah. Uh, Victor Wanyama? <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's basically... Virgil van Dijk, of course. Oh, of course, yeah, Virgil yeah. van Dijk. I mean, there's a million players. Yeah. One million, I would say. And that's, um, and that's a mix of good youth development yeah. good and spot. selling, but then also, mm. yeah, good, good acquisition mm. of players. For, with a good resale value. Right, so there are a few things I want to ask now based on uh, everything that we've just said. The first one is, um, and do tell me when I'm wrong, Yeah. Right. that my perception is, and I believe that uh, one of the perceptions of Southampton is that in the last few years, and this potentially comes in line with the slightly more confusing or 
with less clarity around the man- management and what they're attempting to do. And again, a, a little bit of a shift over with ownership a couple of years ago is that Southampton aren't doing that to the same degree that they once were. Firstly, is that true or is that a misconception? Um, I think there are there are fewer players of that quality being produced. Um, there is still a fairly consistent stream of players that are, generally speaking, sort of fringe squad players who may get the odd FA Cup game or something. Um, I mean, of, of the recent list... Harrison Reed looked very promising when he came into the first team at Southampton. That kind of fell away a little bit, and he's been on loan since. Jake Hesketh, again, got a debut when he was very young and straight away was injured, crunching tackle against Burnley. Mm. And he was somebody who looked like he might have made a breakthrough. McQueen, Target, you know, these, these are good Where's kind it, of... Where's Isgrove? Uh, Has he left the club? I'm not... Yeah, he's on loan at Portsmouth from Barnsley. Okay, there you um, go. Strike him from the list, yeah. Is, is so, there an argument to say that, uh, as we mentioned, less clarity over what management plans are, or even, to put it more boldly, slightly shitter managers, uh, has a knock-on effect when you, know, you, you, you want to reach the final, the final bit of developing these players? Let's look at it from a totally cynical point of view. Sell on value, right? Yeah. You get these uh, incredible youth prospects who break into the first team. If they aren't then well coached or well utilised, they don't then take the next step. Is that is there a potential argument to say that I th- since mm. uh, Kuhn maybe... Well, there's also a continuity argument here as well, is that Southampton's turnover of managers has been greater than usual over the mm. last few seasons. And the great enemy of the youth player is change at that level because mm. you don't get the opportunity to, to kind of to, to foster any trust with the manager, but then of or, course that happened. A relationship that's been happening, I would say, pretty much since they were. I mean, look, certainly with, with slightly longer periods. But I remember when they were promoted and then sacked Nigel Atkins before they played a game. Yeah, you know, they, no, is no, that no, unusual no, they, they, for no, Southampton? No, no. They, 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 they sacked him after a two-two draw at uh, oh, was Chelsea. It? Was it Alex? As a, sure. a Jason punch and goal. It wasn't long into the season. So though, it was wasn't. It? I, I remember it being around the turn of the year. It was an odd. It was an odd one. It was, it was an odd one. Two promotions from Atkins. So. But what I would say now is not one at the time. But given who they brought in, of course, not so odd. Um, but I mean, in that case, Pochettino is a little bit of a case apart because part of his ideology is to to grow components from within. It's it's kind of that's his style of management. It's not necessarily a kind of um, a just a you know a, 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 it's not indicative of life at either Southampton or Tottenham. It's just they appointed him for that specific reason. Mm-hmm. That is what he does. Um, I think, say, Mark Hughes. <laughs> I just <laughs> actually you, you go with this. I, well, I mean, like, yeah. yeah, I mean, Mark, <laughs> I, I'm not Mark sure Mark Hughes necessarily. He came in as a firefighter. Yeah, he wasn't in a position He's to not, do uh, that. I, I, th- I think there is a there is a flip side. I don't disagree with what Seb's saying in terms of a high turnover of management can lead to a, a regression in the productivity of the youth academy. Having said that, uh, you know, Pochettino and Kerman both gave debuts to five youth academy players each. Um, if you're a club like Southampton. I think it can be reframed to look at it the other way around, which mm. is that perhaps from an, an owner's and sort of overall football strategy perspective, there is a greater than usual degree of pressure to give debuts to academy prospects, some of whom may not be up to it. Yeah. So rather than saying, you know, youth academy players aren't breaking through because the manager keeps changing, 
it's possibly players who aren't necessarily of the requisite quality are sort of ending up there because there's this kind of sense of, well, let's give the youngsters a go, mm. um, which in, in some regards could possibly even lead to a higher management turnover mm. because results don't go that well. I mean, I, I don't, I don't think I've really looked at any... I mean, I've always had a soft spot for Harrison Reed, but after Ward-Prowse, I think the, the, the academy prospects, the two who've excited me most have been Hesketh and Oberfemi. Who's now, a good player. Yeah, he's now out yeah. injured for probably the rest of the season. But again, you, kind of, you look at players like McQueen and Target, um, they are good, solid, you know, low to middle Premier League players but they're not a Gareth Bale, they're not an Oxlade-Chamberlain. These mm. were guys who, when we watched them, were clearly destined for serious things. Yeah. Um, it's worth saying at this point also, in, in a broader, non-specific to Southampton way, like recruitment has become harder. Mm. The age of like a, a Rod Ruddock uncovering a Gareth Bale has probably passed because um, the, the big fish in the sea, they are now set up to take a big trawl net through football's mm. oceans and dump whatever they find in their own academy. Yeah. So you don't get these players. You don't get... I mean, one of the problems, of course, yes, is the Premier League and how inhibiting that is for managers who, who want to blood developing players from their academy. Another thing is a lot of these players don't really exist. I mean, you know, every fan thinks that they've got a future Messi in their academy. Like Tottenham have it with Marcus Edwards. You know, it's the same thing. It's just that... These players migrate, as Chelsea have shown, as Manchester City will show in, in due course, given the, the, um, the investment in their own infrastructure, yeah. that they, they hoard them. Yeah. And so the age of a Southampton being able to, to, to develop and sell on an Oxlade Chamberlain, a Walcott, a Bale, it, it, it's probably yesterday's thinking. Well, you may have just answered this question, but okay. uh, Kevin Toman asks, why did Les Reed's recruiting skills decline so quickly after 2014, especially in replacing the key players they sold? And he, he lists Solana, Wanyama, Van Dijk, and even Ricky Lambert. I, I don't, I don't, I don't, um, I don't know that they did. Well, you mentioned you mentioned Les Reed last week on last week's podcast, yeah. didn't you? Yeah. Well, I, I think one of the problems with Les Reed was forget the talent recruitment to yeah. start with. Who did he appoint as manager? Because yeah. Les Reed was also a board member yeah. um, before he, he departed the club. And you look at the appointments and you look at, okay, so if you go back to Alex, fact check me as I go through this and jump in as and when, but Brian Kilpuel and that, I watched a lot of that side and the reaction to it was not great, particularly at home. It was very cautious, mm. you know, Puel um, favours sort of possessional style, caused him similar issues at Leicester, of course, and he's now left that job too. Um, and then so in response to that, you bring in Pellegrino also a very cautious manager, also very defensively orientated. And, you know, after a little bit of a period of grace, you know, the same atmosphere was at St. Mary's. Mm. I mean, I don't, I don't mean this is a criticism of the fans, but it was probably at that time the most toxic home ground in the league. Not toxic in the kind of everyone hates the board and, that, you know, just in the sort of, it must have been very inhibiting for a player to play in front of that because there was so much anxiety. Yeah. And all it would take was a player to receive the ball in around the centre circle, to Cruyff turn back towards his own goal and you could hear the groans. I understood it because the club was in decline and there was a general frustration, but Reid was complicit in creating that because if you're, if you're making these decisions, then you have to pay the... the, the you, 
you have to deal with the consequences of what it creates. And it was this sort of residual negativity, which has only really just started to go away. I, I thought one of the interesting things about Saturday and Fulham before was that when they were defending a lead, there was very little anxiety. It was very, the crowd was right behind the team. Whereas at the end of last season, when I was, I was at the Brighton game, I think when Glenn Murray scored a, a very late penalty equaliser, it might have even been in stoppage time, it was almost a self-fulfilling prophecy because Southampton had the lead, had a two-goal lead, and then for want of a better expression, they fucked it. And the crowd, the crowd, um, I, don't wanna, I don't wanna lay the blame at the crowd for that, but it, you could feel it about to happen. Mm. And it gets Brighton away from home. Brighton are not Liverpool. They're not yeah. sort of, they don't, they don't overflow with goals. They can't hurt you from anywhere. They have to work for each and every goal that they score. And yet it was coming, it was coming, it was coming. And eventually there was the mistake in the penalty box. Mm. I, I can't remember who it was, but someone needlessly shoved someone to the ground and, and that's gone. Mm. And that is a tremendous burden of Southampton's. Uh, yeah, I think I think Southampton certainly, as long as I have been watching them properly and regularly since, like I say, the early two thousands, they've always been quite an attacking side. Not necessarily in terms of producing huge amounts of quality. I mean, you know, back in sort of you know the Peter Crouch days, it was Jason Dodd banging a long ball down to Peter mm. Crouch to cross it into somebody else to and score. Wasn't it wonderful? It was great. It worked. Um, <laughs> But bring back the olden days, right? You know, but I think, oh, um, I think there was, there was an ambition in the style of football and in the approach, even if there wasn't necessarily an ambition in terms of the appointment of managers. And then that ambition in the appointment of managers did continue or, or became a thing with, with Pochettino and Kerman, certainly. And it felt like the two appointments that came after that were very much damage limitation, safety first yeah. appointments, mm. which didn't just say that, you know, there's a lack of ambition in terms of where the club is going to go, but also that because a safety first doesn't imply that you're, you know, going again for European qualification. But it also created a style of football that was anathema to the way that I'd always associated us playing. Yeah. And with Hasenhutl's appointment, and I was asked back in, I don't know, like September or something, who would I take of available managers at, at the club to replace Hughes? And I said Hasenhutl kind of almost as a joke because I never thought it would happen. But mm. that, that counter-attacking, aggressive, direct style is something that we've profited from in the past and yeah. has produced good football for us. And, mm. and that coupled with the fact that he's a guy, you know, who's coached, at a high level, who is seen as progressive, who's seen as having, like Seb says, almost an ideology. That to me takes the club back to the sort of thing that we were doing before. Yeah. Okay. Let's briefly talk about the owners because it, this always excites me. Mm. Um, I did a little bit of a rereading this morning. I rewatched a video that we made about Zhao Ji Sheng, who mm. is a Chinese owner or majority owner of, uh, of Southampton. I think Katharina Lieber still owns a small minority. So Zhao owns 80% of the club as of, I think, 2017? September 2017, August 2017. Yeah. 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 Um, he's got a very interesting story. Again, he's one of my favourite characters uh, in Premier League ownership because he's one of the guys uh, who, <laughs> beginning of every story, is it says, not much is known about Zhao's youth yeah, <laughs> because yeah. this is a whole period of history yeah. where there's no records of anything. right? But Zhao apparently has had uh, various different jobs before he became the owner of Southampton, also the owner of Lander, which is a big Chinese real estate uh, company that he started. Uh, he was a military policeman. 
Uh, he, I think he was a journalist, as, although I can't find any reference to that outside of the script that James Montague wrote for us. So I'm sure James has his sources, but if, if Montague was, says it, it's true. If Montague says it, it's yeah. true, but yeah, I, I, don't, yeah. I can't find that anywhere. Um, he was something else as well. Uh, but anyway, I, I was reading a bit more about him this morning. I read a, uh, a very strange blog from a man who I, I assume was uh, working for a charity who uh, Zhao was contributing to. He'd gone for dinner with Zhao and his family, yeah. and uh, he'd sort of written up this blog with no, no spell-checking at all. He kept calling him Mr. Goa instead of Mr. Zhao. <laughs> Mr. Goa sounds like a, like a guy that went on a gap here and never came back, doesn't <laughs> it? Like someone from a minor public school somewhere has just gone, yeah, I'm just Mr. Goa now. <laughs> he's 50, he's still living on a beach, you know. Yeah. But he talked. He talk, it was very interesting. He, 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 you know, as it would in this sort of blog. But it described him as a as a very, very, a very nice man with with good intentions for Southampton. However, further reading shows that the reason that he invested in the first place was because he was inspired to do so by another businessman from Hong Kong who started investing in the UK. That's a very loud drill. And he said, uh, <laughs> "This is what happens when you start talking about the wealthy. Yeah, uh, people try you and get break silenced. In. Yeah, you get silenced." Yeah. Um, People turn up with, with loud drills. <laughs> and I'm sure that, look, for the, the reasons that many of the Premier League's owners and, and many of top flight football owners all across the world, one of the main reasons they will do this is in the modern game, at least in the Premier League, is because of, uh, for investment reasons, it makes sense. Um, however, the reason I, I mention the reason I mention it is because I, I think it's worth considering that if alongside a host of other Chinese companies and individuals who are investing in clubs, who have no sort of prior involvement in football, who potentially aren't football fans or know that much about football beforehand. In fact, listening back to James's video again, he mentioned that Espanol were bought by a company who made uh, toy cars. You know, it's, it, there's no real connection other than uh, Xi Jinping, the premier of China, want, wanted people to invest in football. That's the only connection. Yeah. Does that impact on Southampton as a club today? What can we infer from uh, transfers that they've, that they, that they've made? Um, how much money they're spending, how much, I mean, I know it's difficult to say how much involvement the owner actually has, but has there been a notable difference since Libra sold over 80%? They, they spent just over £60 million in the summer transfer window, or just around the same mark the year before, although yeah. he wasn't quite in control by then. Yeah. Um, the Danny Ings transfer was concluded for a lot of money, in my mind, too much money. Yeah, I'd agree. Um, I think that was a bit of an overspend on a fairly mediocre Premier League player. Uh, I don't know. I, I think it's too early, Joe. I, I think kind of one of the things, I'll reference James Montague again, because um, if people re haven't read his Billionaires Club book, they really should, because they, specifically with regards to Asia, there's, there's not necessarily any rhyme or reason with some of this investment. There isn't, mm. a, there isn't a thread which binds all these, all, all these uh, billionaires. Um, that's a very inter interesting case he uncovers about a, a guy who invested in Arded in Haag in the Eredivisie, who just disappeared yeah just just left and never came back yeah. it's 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 very strange so I, I i don't know i'm not i'm not um obviously uh the the common bond is Shipeng um and his attitude towards football and you know some of the 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 legislation which has been introduced to, to combat capital flight in china but i don't know what his intentions are with the club i'm not sure um i think i think you know often it, it doesn't hurt to start at the point of, of recognizing what a good investment in the Premier League is. Mm. We know terms now like soft power, um, but that doesn't apply specifically to Chinese investors. So no. I, I, I don't know. I don't have anything to, to offer other than wait and see, I think. Well, I think there are two different things to say here. And to make it clear, neither of these things apply to, to, to Zhao, Jing, uh, Zhao Jinping. 
Um, but I think, you know, the two reasons that uh, we've seen lots of investment from China into football in Europe, for example, the first one, as we mentioned already, is that Xi Jinping, who is the, effectively the president of China, mm -hmm. has declared a great interest in football. He's he, a huge fan of the game. He's, he's yeah. a huge fan, and he wants China to compete and win a World Cup. Yeah. And the way that he sees uh, China doing that is by, is by spending more money in football. And what that led to uh, was a huge um, spending of money from, from the nation's billionaires, from the wealthiest companies uh, in China itself, but also mainly in Europe. Um, I think there are six clubs in, in the... Pre I think there are six clubs in the Premier League who are... Uh, in a couple outside as well, like West Brom are Chinese-owned now as West, well. I was thinking yeah. about this when West Brom were still in the Premier yeah, League. So I think, yeah, I think it's dropped now to Chinese yeah, yeah. But the first, yeah, the first reason is because, I suppose, because of the way that the Communist Party system works, it's a good thing if the president says, I'd like to do this, you, will uh, you, you do it because it yeah. aligns you more closely with power. The second is because uh, China have, uh, I think they call it capital state rules, which are quite tightly controlling what money is allowed out of the country. So if there's suddenly a door opened to invest in things in the UK or in Europe by following what appears to be the Premier's uh, want, which is spending money on football, if that means you can suddenly get £200 million out of China yeah. when you couldn't previously, that's also a good thing for you. And think, that, again, that's not related to anyone specifically, but, but well, that I, is I, there. I think that's kind of... Um, uh, this might be incorrect, but uh, my understanding was that... Um, that was part of the reason for the delay in this takeover because it was quite a protracted agreement. It, it, I think uh, it ended up being him as an individual. Right? Yeah, so Zhao, um, Zhao owns Southampton with his daughter. Yeah. Um, Molly? Yeah. I think Molly. Um, and they bought the club as, you know, privately through funds that I think that were held in Hong Kong or something. Mm. I, I, I'm no financial expert by any stretch of the imagination, but. Um, mm. That's, yeah, so it's, it's a complicated thing. Well, retrospectively, that's good, because I think last month, yeah. apparently, he lost his controlling stake in Lander, which was previously his real estate company, which he would have bought Southampton through. So it would have meant that this month, Southampton would have a different owner, technically. Yeah, I think he only owned 59% of it, right. originally. Okay. So it's not quite, I mean, it's still probably not ideal for the Zhao family. You know, you always like to have controlling interest in your own companies, but... That's not kind of, uh, yeah. yeah. As you say, it's too early to really tell what, what, what impact knows, this will have on the club, if, if any, right? You've got to judge all these guys and their own individual merits and, and yeah. their, their record over time. Yeah, I think there's, there's just two very quick things I'd add to that, and I mm -hmm. agree with what Seb said. The, the first is that Katrina Liebherr retaining some stake is important. I mean, obviously, her dad, Marcus, was the guy who basically saved the club in 2009 yeah. after we went into administration. Um, and there is... Certainly towards Marcus, there was a real degree of positivity around the fans because of that. I think the other thing is whether or not his tenure has been altogether a success. Ralph Kruger is, is still basically running the club on a day-to-day -day basis mm -hmm. and has been doing so since 2014. So there is a consistency there. It's not like Zhao has come in and installed his own guy straight away or you know, brought someone in with some sort of familial connection who doesn't understand football. Yeah. Uh, and I think that shows an astuteness. Mm. Now, whether he will then change these things once he's got his feet more under the table, I don't know. But I <laughs> I would look at that that continuity and the appointment of Hasenhutl as being very big ticks. They indicate so far. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, we've got a few questions uh, from listeners. Uh, I made a... Sorry about the builders. Uh, I made an error this morning. I, when I asked people for questions, I asked them for questions relating to Leicester, which is the podcast that we did last we week. We could go back 
and uh, last week and ask them there and tack it on. <laughs> tack it where well, we could do that. Edit. Uh, but uh, luckily, some people are much smarter than me and uh, remember from last week that we said we were going to do Southampton. So we have a few questions. The first is from uh, Papagendo. Papagendo says, uh, I assume it's actually about Southampton. Yes, you're correct. So my question is simple. Um, <laughs> I assume you're an idiot. <laughs> you, you won't want to answer this question directly, but you might want to talk around it. Uh, oh, he said that, has he? How, no, I'm saying oh, right, okay. How long until Stuart Armstrong wins the Ballon d'Or? Quite a while. Quite a while. Quite a while. Alex said never. Uh, really good player. Yeah, sure. I really like him. Yeah. I, I think he's a... I, I, I thought back in August um, he would become one of the signings of the season. I think he's a... He's a as far as Premier League transfers go... I've got no idea who he is. Tell me who he is. So he's midfield. He came from Celtic. Um, I think the thing to like about him is that he's a good finisher, but also um, he, fitting with the sort of the harsh and little, um ideology, he makes a lot of runs from midfield, which is very very handy if you're if you're set up to to, to mm. be candidate side. Okay. He, 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 um, yeah. So yeah, give him. Uh, let's revisit that one in a year's time, maybe. He's, he's, he's never better. going to win the battle. No, though. probably not that one. No. We've talked about young players already, and we talked about the idea that is that uh, happening less or more? I'm not really sure still. But uh, here's a question about the, the, the genesis of it, I suppose. Uh, Sean Munn asks, assuming you guys mean Southampton. Yes, we did, Sean. Thank you. Um, <laughs> what is it about them that's caused them to produce a lot of uh, great or at least good British players such as Bale, Shaw, Walcott or Lalana? Does anybody have an answer as to that? The two very straightforward things mm. are... That was an intention that was realised. Yep. They they re- they knew they wanted to do that, particularly as a result of going into administration, the points deduction. Mm-hmm. It became a priority. Yeah. Uh, also, and it is interesting again to to say this drop off since maybe 2014, 2015. Yeah. Uh, prior to that point, with Brighton and Bournemouth being the only other sizable clubs after Portsmouth had basically died on its ass. I mean. It, the Portsmouth fans have done a fantastic job to rehabilitate that club. Mm. But it meant that Southampton as an entity sort of stood alone in the South Central catchment area. Um, there's not a lot happening in the Southwest either. So we were able to take quite a few players from, you know, the Plymouth Argyle youth system, for example, um, who are one of the few clubs in that neck of the woods. Um, mm-hmm. That gave us straight away an advantage um, because okay. we weren't really competing for people with, the, the cream of the crop in that area. Okay. Um, here's a good one. Uh, again, we've talked about James Will Prowse already, but I think this is, this is a nice question from Keith Kekazawa. Uh, could someone explain to me exactly what type of midfielder James Ward Prowse is? I've seen him do a lot of roles to decent effect, but I can't make up my mind what exactly his talents are. I mean, is that's literally what I said earlier. Yeah, he's, I, I, I think he's, no, he's absolutely right. But how can, how can we put that into a sentence? Because that's what we do here at TIFO Football. I think... I think he's somewhere between an eight and a, a ten, like a, a nine. No, but not like that. No, I, I just mean that sort of. He has the attributes of both. I mean, he used to yeah. um, he used to play in central midfield for the England under ones, and he was he was very good. He's uh, he's technically good in tight spaces, which helps for a midfielder. He's developed this. Was the drilling finished? He's developed this kind of uh, this drive and this tenaciousness, which is very very helpful. I think he's a. Uh, I, I, I think he's a midfielder in transition, um, in the abstract sense. I mean, he's he's growing into something else. I think we are at the beginning of a point in time where James Walpass will develop into something definitive. 
what that is, I'm not quite sure yet, but I... Develop into what, sorry? Into something definitive. Mm. So we will have a better idea of that in probably a year's time. I mean, okay. um, he's not going to get any deeper than an eight. He doesn't mm. have the attributes to play in those kind of positions, the sort of the Romeo um, situation. Southampton will almost certainly try and replace Romeo in the summer anyway. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll see. But it's just interesting. It's... Okay. Uh, you're seeing a, a different layer reveal itself almost on a weekly basis at the moment mm, with him. Interesting. Fascinating. I, I think we should wrap it up now before we um, yeah. before the noise escalates at all. Yeah. Um, but uh, thank you very much to everyone for listening. I'm thinking perhaps we could uh, we could think about doing Brighton next week, maybe. We talked about them a little bit already. If we think they're going to be struggling, best get them in now before they get relegated. But Joe, you said we weren't needed next week. Oh, we're not needed next week. Week I mean, after. I am. You're not. The week after. That's true. Thanks for reminding me. Next week, uh, Martino Simsic from Copper 90 is coming back in. I think we're uh, developing on the conversation we had last time, expanding about ultras. Very, very exciting. Very exciting stuff. Very exciting stuff. Personally, I hate the fans. I, I you like know what? Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put my hand up for, for Wolves in two weeks' time. Okay. I think Wolves are very, very interesting. We should do Brighton before they get relegated, though. Yeah. Okay. We've got time. Wolves will be around next year. You can't, once Joe says. Maybe we should do this thing. What, that, what you need to learn kind of is like, that that is what's happening. That okay. is kind he's of what just, I mean. He's just doing it in a slightly he, soft and aggressive mm. right, style. Right, I got you. Okay. It's so, like when I say maybe you shouldn't open your nicotine gum during the podcast. That's recording. it. Don't do it. Don't. That's open what your I'm saying. That, I've, that, that yeah. I've caught on to. Don't yeah, do yeah, it. Yeah, or yeah. I'll cause problems for you and your family. Yeah. <laughs> right. Carl exterior, burning eyes. Seb, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Joe. Alex, thank you. Thank you. And we'll see you again next week. Goodbye.